Thank you very much, praise team. What a beautiful song. Again, as Brother Shane mentioned, we're going to sing that together. Here in just a little bit as a response to the message we'll see today, because that idea of beholding our God, of seeing that there's nobody like Him, is going to resound over and over throughout today's text. So if you would turn there with me, it's in Genesis chapter 40. Genesis 40 and 41, it's our text for today. As we continue to look at the life of Joseph, I know that that's a, a lengthy piece of text, so I'm not going to read all of chapters 40 and 41. I recommend that you do that, um, not right now, later today, uh, maybe sometime this week if you haven't read through these chapters before, because this morning I'm going to read parts and then summarize parts uh, for our sake, for time's sake this morning. So if you're with us, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know where we are. If not, just a quick refresher. Uh, Joseph is in Egypt now, right? He's gotten there because of the sinful acts of his brothers. But we're also seeing the God's hand at work in this life of Joseph. Even through these evil acts, he was a servant. He became a head servant in Potiphar's house because of the, the blessing that God gave to him, of the way that God used him. But then, because of a wrongful accusation, he's been put in prison. And as we're picking up today, that's where he is. He's in prison. He's still uh, seeing God's favor there in prison. He is one of the head uh, servants in the prison, one of the head inmates, if you would. Uh, but today, he's going to be joined by two other men. These men come from the royal court. One of them is the chief cupbearer to Pharaoh himself. The other is the chief baker. And so these two men do something, they're thrown into prison. And so we're really picking up today with this interaction between these two men and Joseph in the prison. So look with me in Genesis chapter 40. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So here we see, right, these two men are, are in prison. While they're in prison, they have dreams. They each have their own dream. These dreams are a little bit uh, startling or, or at the very least confusing to them. And now they're upset because there's nobody to help them understand what these dreams mean, what they're talking about, what's going to happen. And then Joseph comes along and says, Hey, guys, why are y'all so sad? What's wrong? I said, well, we've had these dreams. We can't figure out what they mean. Nobody to help us out. And Joseph said, well, don't you know that interpreting dreams, understanding what dreams mean, is an ability that God has. The, the ability to help people understand what their dreams are saying is something that belongs to God. And so this may have seemed interesting to these guys, but as the story continues here in chapter 40, he hears their dreams, 
God gives Joseph the supernatural ability to interpret both dreams. He interprets both of them correctly. It says, as, uh, he tells him, this will happen to you, Baker. This will happen to you, cupbearer. And the things that he said happened just the way that he said they were going to. And it appears that what's really happening here is, once again, God giving this supernatural ability to Joseph. And it starts to look like, okay, now I see where this story's headed because... Joseph tells the cupbearer, this is what your dream means. Soon you're going to be restored to your lofty position. You'll be back at Pharaoh's side again. And when you get out, don't forget me. And you say, okay, now we see what's happening. The cupbearer is going to get back to his position. He's going to talk about this Hebrew guy. Joseph's going to get out. Everything's going to be good. And most of those things play out as the cupbearer, it, it comes true, he's restored to his position, he's back at Pharaoh's side, he's this important guy in the kingdom, and he forgets Joseph. Right? Joseph says, hey, when you get out, don't forget me, and that's the one thing that he really did well was forget Joseph altogether. And Joseph ends up spending a couple of more years in prison. And we're not really told what happens during that time, right? There are a couple of missing years, it seems, in Joseph's life. But in the overall story, we see the things that God wants us to see. What happened there, we don't know and we don't need to know. But we do know this. After a couple of years, this whole idea of dreams and the interpretation of dreams and trying to understand dreams comes up again. This time it's not the cupbearer having dreams, it's not the baker that's having dreams, it's Pharaoh himself that has dreams. We're told in chapter 41 that Pharaoh has two dreams, uh, and the two dreams had the same meaning, but, but these dreams were startling to him. It's the word that the text uses. He wakes up and he's startled and he is confounded by these dreams. And so what does Pharaoh do whenever he has dreams that are startling and confounding? Well, look with me in chapter 41, verse 8. It says, So in the morning, he is that speaking of Pharaoh. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh has these dreams and if you don't know, so in this day and time, there were, there were people whose job was to be dream interpreters. What a great job, I guess, as long as you're good at it, right? Your job is to interpret dreams. So he calls in all these people. There would have been wise men. There would have been magicians of some sort that they had. These professional dream interpreters come in, and he says, here's my dream or my dreams, and none of them, none of these men are able to tell him to give him a fitting answer for what these dreams were trying to tell him. And it really starts to resemble what we see in the book of Daniel. Y'all remember in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 4, in both of those chapters, Nebuchadnezzar has dreams, and wherever Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams, the same word is used for one that he was startled, by the dream, he's confounded, he can't figure out what they're talking about, and so what does he do? He calls in, he's the king of a large nation, so he calls in all the king's horses and all the king's men, right? The wise men and the magis and the scientists and the astrologers, and nobody could explain to King Nebuchadnezzar what he saw in his dream. But then Daniel comes along, 
And in Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 and 28 says this. Daniel speaking, he says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And what does Daniel do? Daniel explains to King Nebuchadnezzar exactly what his dreams mean. He gives them the interpretation because God gave Daniel that ability. Which brings us back here to Pharaoh. What happens whenever none of his professional dream interpreters can interpret his dream? We'll look in verse 9. We'll continue the story. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, that's prison, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So, once again, very similarly to the book of Daniel. We talked Wednesday night, we looked at some parallels between the life of Joseph and the actions of Joseph and those of Daniel. I think there are a lot of parallels there that are really interesting for us. But in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. Nobody can interpret it. Daniel comes in, and Daniel's very quick to point out, this is not my ability, this is God's ability, but here's the interpretation. And he tells him what the dream means. And the same thing here, right? Pharaoh, he's there, and we're starting to see these things play out. The cupbearer is there by his side, and he's hearing these conversations, and he says, oh, Pharaoh... You're having trouble with dream interpretation. I remember now, a couple of years ago, and he, he explains the whole story. And so Joseph comes, and Pharaoh says, Young man, I hear that you can interpret dreams. And in the same way, Joseph is very quick not to say, Yes, I am very, very good. Listen at what I can do. Let me show you my great ability. But instead, very humbly, he says, That's not my ability. That's God's ability. But God will give you an answer to your question, Pharaoh. And he answers exactly, he, he tells him the dream. And just like in the other instances, God gives Joseph the understanding and explains to Pharaoh what's going on. Point one this morning is this, and it's really the overarching point of the sermon. God can do things no one else can. Now, as I was thinking through and, and writing my sermon notes this week, every time I came to point one, I just imagined each of you saying, wait just a minute. You just talked for that long to tell us God can do things nobody else can. Like, Brother Zach, yes, of course, we all know that God can do things that nobody else can. And I agree, he can. And it's really the point that we see here in this text, right? 
Was there anybody in the prison that was able to interpret the dreams? No, not until God gave Joseph the ability. Was there anybody in Pharaoh's court? Was there anybody in Egypt? Was there anybody in Babylon? Was there anybody in the world that could interpret dreams except God giving his men the ability to do it? No. God can do things that absolutely, positively, nobody else can do. And again, I'm not telling you I pray something that you don't already know, but let me ask you this. While I say God can do things no one else can, and you say, yes, we all know that, let me ask you this, do you know that or do you really know that? Because sometimes there are some things that we know in a way, and then there are things that we know and hold as deeply understood beliefs that change the way that we live our lives. And if you really believe that God can do anything, the things that nobody else can do, the things that seem scientifically impossible, I think that our lives will look different. I think our, particularly our prayer lives, will look a lot different than they do. I thought about a couple of specific things that have impacted our church family recently that fall into this category. probably should have cleared these with the people mentioned in them beforehand, but I'm trusting that they're okay with it. Many of you know Brother Wayne Brown. At our house, we call him Graypop. Brother Wayne was, in the last couple of years, diagnosed with a lung condition that he was told is irreversible. This will, we can treat it with medicine and it will help slow down the progress of it, but it will eventually make it so that you're not going to be able to breathe. Right? This, is, this is kind of the direction that this thing is headed. It cannot be reversed by medicine. It was, it was the promise that was made by science and by the expert doctors that he had. Many of you know that my grandmother, just a couple of years ago, uh, was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. Stage 4 lung cancer that had spread to other parts of her body as well before it was even treated. Many of you know the dire diagnosis that Miss Annie Ruth's daughter, Kathy Parker, was recently given. Right, And, and in every one of these instances, I think that, that some of us, whenever we hear things like this, when we see things like this, our head... And, and the logical side being 21st century people living in the Western world that we live in say, well, that's that, because science says that's that, right? That, that's just how things are. It's been a good run, but it is what it is, and you just have to deal with this whenever you hear it, because there's not really anything that they said that they can do. But, but faith says... Yes, that's true that they can't do anything, but he can do something. And I think there's a difference whenever we say, hey, I know God can do anything. My grandmother has cancer. Well, I better enjoy the last few months that I have with her before she dies. And there's a difference in saying, well, I know God can do anything. And so grandma has cancer, so I'm going to spend time on my knees every day praying that that cancer will be healed. And it may not be, but I know that God can. There's a difference there in knowing and in really knowing. And so this morning, whenever I say, God can do things no one else can, I think you say, yes, true, but I don't know if any of you said, I know you didn't out loud, say, amen. God can do things that nobody else can. Because, brothers and sisters, Wayne Brown went back to the doctor. We prayed 
Some, if we're being honest, probably skeptically. Yeah, we'll pray about that because they asked us to pray about that. Somebody, I believe, was praying in faith, believing, knowing that God can do this because Wayne Brown went for a checkup and the doctor said, I don't know what to say because this can't happen, but it happened. And your lungs are better than they were. This thing is not the issue that we thought that it was going to be for you. We didn't misdiagnose it. We got to double check. Everything was like it's supposed to be. This isn't possible. And say, well, science may not be, right? But it happened. And my grandmother was recently told she's cancer free. And the, the doctor said, quote, she's a walking miracle. Praise God. It's exactly what it is. Y'all know Kathy was here on Easter Sunday, worshiped with us. With her church family today. Been back at work, enjoying her family. Right? Her, her cancer's not gone. She's still fighting that battle. But in the beginning, it didn't look like at this point she's still going to be fighting that battle. But praise God, she's still around. And, and to be clear, I'm not telling you that everything you pray about, God's going to do. But I'm telling you this, everything you pray about, He could do. He could. And when He knows it's best, He will. Every single time. It's a promise of Scripture. When we pray according to God's will, we know that we'll have the things that we've prayed for. So sometimes we need to just pray more. Sometimes we need to trust God more and trust ourselves less. We need to know that we know that God can do things that nobody else can do. Because I tell you this, this dream interpreting business, it's just the beginning Right, we're in Genesis. This is just the beginning of understanding the type of things that God can do that nobody else can do. Let me give you a quick rundown of the dreams themselves. The dreams include healthy cows and skinny cows and, and corn, and you say, I don't know about all that. Here's the interpretation. Pharaoh, there's going to be seven good years around here. Crops are going to be good. Livestock, everything's going to be good for seven years, and then a famine's coming. And the famine's going to last seven years, and it's going to be bad. See, the dreams, like Joseph's dreams at the beginning of his life story that we saw here, a couple chapters back, are God giving a warning, or God prophesying about something that's going to happen in the future. God was telling Pharaoh, you better be ready, you better watch out, because seven years of famine are coming. And you've got to be prepared for that type of thing. Because lots of people are going to die whenever you go seven years in a row with famine and the crops aren't growing and the water's not coming and things aren't good. So Joseph tells Pharaoh this is what the dreams mean, right? God gives him the understanding. He tells Pharaoh what's going to happen. But he goes a little bit further than that. He says, hey, here's what the dream means and here's what you need to do. And Joseph tells Pharaoh, he says, you need to get a high-ranking official and you need to put him in charge of this project and we got to store up some food we're going to have to store up some grain and store up some things so that when those seven years of famine come, everything will be all right around here. And you don't ever really know how a Pharaoh is going to reply to a young Hebrew person telling him what he ought to do, right? Because look and see what his response to that is. In and we're still in chapter 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, 
and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So what happens here is as Pharaoh is pleased, he thinks this is a great idea, and he exalts Joseph, right? I mean, you're talking in one day, they pull him out of the prison. And by the end of the day, he's the prime minister. Now, that's not mine. I read that somewhere. This week. I thought that's so good. From, from the pit to the prime minister in one day. Who did that? God did that, right? God gives Joseph the ability to interpret this dream. God gives Joseph this understanding. Even Pharaoh can see it. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Pharaoh himself, knowingly or not, is praising God here. Joseph, the only reason that you're better than anybody else is because of what God has shown you and because of what God has done in you. Praise God. And he oversees it, and he oversees it well. Because God gives him this understanding and this wisdom and this ability that nobody else has. And so point two this morning is this. God can do things no one else can. I know. That's the same one. I know. I know. I just... I'm not clever enough to come up with a different way to say it. I just thought I'd say it the same way because it's still true. The, the first one's on a micro level, right? There's, man, we've got a dream. And nobody can help me understand this dream. Well, God can help you understand that dream. But here it's on this macro level where we're stepping back and we're zooming out and we're finally starting to see... Right, that, that moment whenever you put together enough of the puzzle pieces that you're starting to see what this puzzle is. You're starting to see the whole picture here. Whenever we ask the questions, why would God allow Joseph's brothers to kidnap him and throw him into a pit and to sell him into slavery and allow him to be a slave in a foreign country? Why would God let that happen to an innocent man, one of his people? Why would God allow Joseph to be wrongfully accused and put in prison to stay there for years? Why did God not keep Joseph in the forefront of the cupbearer's mind, but instead allowed him to forget so that Joseph had to stay there for even longer? Over and over, we've had these questions about Joseph and what's going on in his life. And the problem the whole time hasn't been that the wrong things were happening. They're just that we had the wrong understanding of the things that were happening. You see how that works? God knew the plan the whole time. You ever done this with your kids? You're doing something and you've got a plan and you're working towards something. And they ask you, uh, uh, just wait. Wait, wait, no, 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 just wait. Just wait. When we get there, you're going to be thankful. And this whole time, God has been taking His servant, and even through incomprehensible things, some of them evil things, some of them neglectful things, some of them just things that are hard to understand, but through all of those things, God's been working out this plan. That one day, 
Joseph would be in a prominent position in Egypt, leading this, this grain-storing plan that would lead to, I believe, probably millions of lives being saved during the famine. It says all of the people of the land of Egypt came to get, get bread and grain whenever this happened. All these people are saved because God this whole time knew the future, had a plan, and was positioning His man to be in the right place at the right time. And just like you would expect, it all worked out perfectly. This plan was a good plan. I want to give you three different things that I see in this that are these are just real quick. You can write them down if you want. But, but the, some of the good that came from God's plan here that we just couldn't see was life-giving good. The first one is life-giving good. Because millions, if not millions, at least thousands and thousands of people are saved from starving to death because of the work that God was doing in Joseph's life. Life-giving good. There's also promise-keeping good here. Because you remember... Some of you remember, God told Abraham a long, long time before this that his descendants, his people, would be captives in a foreign land for 400 years before they came back to the promised land. And this is working out the fulfillment of that promise, that, that God had promised Abraham that his people were going to a foreign land, and this is the process of getting them there. God's keeping that promise that he made, because he always keeps his promise. And the other one is history-altering good. Because you know what this is setting the stage for? Setting the stage for the Exodus. Y'all remember that story? right? We always remember the Passover and the Red Sea being parted. But here's what's really happening there. One of the most historically important and formative acts in all of history, when God goes and saves his people from the hand of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And we're still talking about it today. And throughout all of Scripture, it's this reminder of, of the things that God can do that we can't do. All of this was happening the whole time that we were sitting around questioning, what in the world is God doing? Why in the world would God allow that to happen? He was bringing about all these things. Point three this morning is this. It's not the same. God is playing chess while we are learning checkers. And I pray that you understand what I'm saying there, brother. Says, We're just trying to figure out what a red one can do and what a black one can do and how they can jump. And God's playing chess, thinking moves and moves ahead because He knows the future. Because He has plans that even if He told them to us, would not make sense. We see it play out over and over. If He says, Joseph, I'm going to let you go and be a prisoner in Egypt for years. Joseph said, what are you talking about? Right? We, we see God, He leads His people out of Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and now there's a sea in front of them and an army behind them and we say, God, what are you doing? You made a mistake. They made the wrong turn. And he says, no, watch this. And He parts the sea, right? And we just see it over and over. And probably the greatest example of all of them is the gospel itself. Right? We, we have the gospel where there's sinful, rebellious people who should love God, who hate God, who should hate evil, and they love evil, and they love sin, and they love doing things their own way. That's us. That's everybody else. And God says, you know what? Those people are bound and headed for hell. If I don't intervene. So I'm going to intervene. I'm going to save them. And you say, okay, God, tell me the plan. Like we're riding in on a white horse. We're slaying the enemy. 
this is the plan? And he says, no. Tell you what, I think I'm, just, I'm going to be born as a baby to a poor family. Live a humble life. I'm going to love people. I'm going to care for people. Try and help them understand the teachings of the sacred teachings, right? I'm going to help them understand God's word better. And then I'm going to die. Be nailed to a cross. Killed like a criminal. They're going to put my body in a tomb. You say, that's the plan? He said, yeah, I'm going to be resurrected. And you said, that's the plan? That's how you're going to save people, guys? Because the work of God and the mind of God doesn't make sense to simple-minded people like me. But I can tell you this, the gospel works. The gospel works. People are saved by this truth, by this work. Every single time, God has a plan. And every single time, that plan is perfect. We're just not able to understand it. So, brothers and sisters, today I want to do something just a little bit different than normal. Usually, the action steps that I have for you at this point are this, this, this. This is what I want to do. I believe that every single one of us in here this morning have something that you would like to see God do in your life. And I'm not talking about like genie and a lamp kind of things, like give me a million dollars or a million followers on Instagram. I'm talking like, like I, God, I would really love to see my kids or my grandkids become content in life because they know you. I've got a friend or a family member that's lost. God, I would love for them to come to know you. Right? There's brokenness in your family. There's hurt. There's disunity. And you say, God, I would like to see those relationships mended between me and my kids, between my kids and one another. Right? You have a friend that's lost their job, and you'd like to see them be able to find a job, one that they can enjoy. Right? There's something very personal to you that you would like to see God do that only God can do. I think sometimes because of our logical minds, we don't pray about those things. Whatever reason. I don't think God would actually do it. We won't ever admit it, but maybe I don't think God can do it. I don't think that God cares about it. Whatever it is. Brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to do during our time of response today. I want you to pray about something specific. And then, whenever you leave here, make a note in your phone, make a post-it. Write it on an index card, put it somewhere, and pray about it tomorrow, and pray about it the next day, and pray about, and pray about it until God either does it or changes your mind about it. Because He's not going to answer every one of those prayers the way that you ask Him to. He's not going to. Because sometimes the answer to prayer is that we need to want what God wants rather than Him wanting what we want, right? If you'd have told Joseph the plan, he'd probably said, God, can I opt out? I don't want to be a prisoner. I don't want to be a slave. But at the end of the story, he says, God, I should have wanted what you wanted all along. So sometimes the prayer will be answered because God, God is willing to do what we ask him to. And sometimes the prayer is going to be answered because he's going to change our heart. But pray about this thing until God either answers the prayer the way you're asking him to or changes your heart about it. And I believe that he'll honor that. So this morning I'm going to ask you to stand and the praise team's going to come. And we're going to sing, Behold Our God, seated on His throne.
Come let us adore Him. Spend some time praying. You can pray where you are. You can come down to these steps and use them as an altar. If you can picture yourself praying before God in a special way by doing that, come and do that. If you want somebody to pray with you about whatever it is that you have on your mind, I would love to pray with you. Come down here and see me and we'll pray about it. If you're here and you don't know God, let me for you offer that as the prayer that you would pray. God, I don't know you. God, I don't trust you. God, I don't have faith in you. Help me to have faith. Help me to believe. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let that be the thing that you pray about. But you pray, and whenever you're done praying, sing this song with the praise team. But you pray about whatever it is that the Lord's giving you to pray about now as they lead us in a time of response. Mm -hmm.